This is Strange Assembly episode 136, An Ornamental Arrangement, Part 2. I'm Chris Stevenson, and you're listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Joining me today are Rich Bowers Dean and Mike Cook. As you know from listening to last time, this was not intended to be a standalone episode, but due to the size, it was split in two. Last episode, we talked about Dungeons and Dragons, Doomtown, and a bunch of other things. This episode is entirely our discussion of the lawsuit by Wizards of the Coast against Cryptozoic and Hex Entertainment. If you like what you hear, feel free to check us out at www.strangeassembly.com. Until then, enjoy. So the last thing we wanted to talk about, because it's totally in my wheelhouse, is the recent lawsuit that was filed by Wizards of the Coast against Hex, the digital trading card game slash MMO. Although, but right now it's the MMO part, the, the PVE MMO part doesn't exist yet. Is that no. correct? No. It's it's not publicly available. Okay, so now I I did not kickstart Hex because, as I've said before, I it maybe it's irrational, but I am just not into the whole buying digital TCGs things. I just can't seek money digital thing like that. But but Mike kickstarted Hex and Jay kickstarted Hex and I know Rich that you have played a smidge in the beta although you did not kickstart it, right? Is that the right guys? Yeah, yeah. I I didn't have the money at the time to uh to jump in on the Kickstarter and uh right now I'm pretty glad I, I haven't. But um... yeah, so the, the sort of Simple way to put it is that, before you get into the legalese, is that Hex has a lot in common with Magic. And so, essentially, Wizards is suing Hex, saying that they copied Magic. I guess I should preface this by saying, so So there's a legal complaint, and it's got a, a number of technicalities in it. And for most people, this is where, you know, you'd be writing the forum post, and you'd be, I-A-N-A-L, I am not a lawyer, but... Let me uh, run my mouth and, and talk about some legal concept. Well, I can't say that because I actually am a lawyer. What you may have picked up from one of my uh, episodes where I interviewed Fred Wan, who's also a lawyer. So instead, let me give the obnoxious spiel that I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. I'm not giving you legal advice. Although I don't know why you'd think I was giving you legal advice when I was talking about some lawsuit between Wizards of the Coast and Hex. I don't know. I don't know that these sort of disclaimers are actually useful, but this is the sort of thing that lawyers do. So I have studied the intellectual property concepts that are at work in this lawsuit, including, God help me, I actually looked up some cases after reading the complaint, I, which is really <laughs> a waste of time. One of these things in here is a patent, and I have a hard science undergrad degree, so I actually studied patent law in case I wanted to do that, and then I didn't. This is future Chris stepping in for a moment. This is the part of the recording where I talk in a very vague way about how intellectual property law does or does not intersect with my current practice. But I, future Chris, have decided that discretion is the better part of valor, and although this is in very general terms, 
I do not want to run afoul of any non-publicity agreements that I may have concerning my employment. So you're just not going to get that part of the episode. Sorry. Back to the show. So if you look at the Wizards of the Coast complaint, the first part is basically a listing of things that they say are are similar between Hex and Magic. And so, and let me, you know, preface this by noting, okay, these are the things that Wizards is identifying as similar. Surely when Hex files their answer, they will point out all the things that are different. And we can talk about some of those too. And I'm going to assume that everybody's played Magic because I don't have time to explain that. So, right, Magic has five colors. Hex has five colors. Hex's five colors are... Very close to the colors of magic. Magic has red and green and white and black and blue. Hex has ruby and wild, which is green, and sapphire and diamond, which is white. And they have what it used to be. They have blood, which used to be black, but is now purple. It's always been purple. Every time I saw it, I've seen card images that are have them be black and cards that have be purple. But I think they were just tweaking the image. But anyway, it doesn't matter. There are a lot of similar card types. There's troops, which are like creatures. There's constants, which are like enchantments. There are colorless cards that are that are explicitly artifacts. There's the equivalent of sorceries and instants. Yes. There's a pretty healthy amount of overlap in the magic color pie and the hex gem pie, I guess. You have resource cards in each game. You start with 20 life. You start with a 7-card hand. You have a 60-card deck. You can't have more than 4 of any cards other than the basic resource cards. They're both fantasy games. And then there are things that, that Wizards goes into that are more specific, like card layout and where you know and where you put the, the card type and where you put the card title and image and text box. And then there are things that get into more tech stuff because there, there are things about similarities, they say, between the user interface for Duels of the Planeswalkers and the user interface for Hex. The sequence of the card turn is kind of the same. You have untap, you have upkeep, you draw, you have a main phase, you have a combat phase, you have another main phase, and then you end. You have a library, you have a graveyard. Creatures can't attack or or use tap abilities the turn they come into play. And then Hex has keyword mechanics, and an awful lot of those keyword mechanics relatively directly correspond to a magic keyword mechanic. You have haste and speed, flying and flight, vigilance and steadfast, defender and defensive, first strike and swift strike, hexproof and spell shield, trample and crush. Life drain and... Life Life drain and life drink. Lifelink, yeah. Yeah. Lifelink. Okay, so out of this, Wizards of the Coast asserts three causes of action. Copyright infringement, trade dress infringement, and a patent infringement. So... Let's start with the first one, which is probably the weakest, I think, which is the copyright infringement. And for both the copyright infringement and the the trade dress, what they are basically saying is that in all of this stuff that magic does, there is some sort of idea embodied, and that Hex is copying. That between the way that the game plays and the way that the card looks and all of this general flavor, that this produces something copyrightable. They talk about the plot elements, theme, mood, setting, pace, 
and this forms a copyright and that, that Hex is violating it. I think this is the weakest, and I'm not going to talk about it as much because I don't think it's as interesting, because the sort of things that you traditionally think about as a, as a copyrightable material are pretty vague, like generic fantasy stuff. And it's kind of odd to talk about having a copyright in the sequence of play of the game. Yeah, I have, I have to agree with you. I, I, of, the, of the three elements, yeah, this seems to be the, the weakest of them. Um, there's a lot of similarities in terms of cards. Like, instead of shock, one red, deal two points of damage instant, you've got a spell called burn, which is one ruby, deals two points of damage, again, at, at instant speed, so you can do it at any time. But the difference in hex and magic is, you know, in magic, you have to tap a mountain to do that. In hex... You just have to have one red resource, and you could have, theoretically, if you had four of these cards in your hand, you had four resources in play. As long as one of them is red, you could do all four. Yes. You've generally got the notion of, oh, you have basic resource cards, and they're colored, but the way that, right, magic, you have to put the land out, and then if you've got a mountain, you can just tap it for a red, and then that's it. And then after it's produced one red, and you've cast spent that one red, it doesn't help you do anything. Whereas Hex has... It's a threshold system. Yeah, so a card has sort of two parts to its... Do they call it a casting cost, or what do they call it? Just cost. Cost. Just cost. So it's got two parts to its cost. One is a number, and then one is a number of colored symbols, at least for non-artifacts. So if something costs nine, and then it's got three green symbols, three wild symbols, then you have to have played nine total shards, the resource cards, over the course of the game, and three of those have to have been green. But, like you said, once you have three green, you can cast any number of... I mean, you still have to have the total number of resources, but you can cast a bunch of things that have a, a threshold of three green. And so that is is one of the, the things that's that's different about it. So let me go to the the second cause of action is trade dress. And, and some of the stuff from the trade dress applies to the copyright, but we'll, we'll talk about it there. Now, copyright is protecting an intellectual creation of yours. The traditional copyright thing you think of is, is, right, I wrote a book. You can't just copy my book. I made up Mickey Mouse. You can't just go make your own Mickey Mouse cartoons. And as, as anyone who knows copyright law knows, I believe that it's actually in the law now that the duration of a copyright is however long it needs to be so that Walt Disney never loses its copyright on Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Basically. And that Warner Brothers never loses the copyright to Superman. Interesting Okay, not, maybe not interesting tangent, but tangent. <laughs> if you ever watch something like a a cartoon show of the... I guess it's probably in the movies, too, but it, it's easier. Like, if you go on Netflix and watch a, a cartoon show of, like, the Avengers, and it's Captain America for the Avengers, and if you watch a Justice League or something, it's Batman and Superman for the Justice League. During the credits, there will be specific callouts for the creation of those characters. And there won't be callouts for the creation of any of the other characters. And the difference is that they're basically older when the contracts that the comics had with their artists were different. So anything with Batman will always say, Batman created by Bob Kane. And the stuff with Captain America will always say Captain America created by I don't even know who. But not Stan Lee, who's the one who created like everything else of Marvels from the 60s. But anyhow, so that's your the random tangent. Okay, but trade dress, which is a more dangerous cause of action, I think, for Hex here. You can think of it as a variant of trademark. 
A trademark is a very pretty specific thing. Like, I have this logo or this symbol or this phrase, and you can tell it's a trademark because I write TM or uh, at the end of it. Or if you have an R with a circle, that means it's a registered trademark. What is the point of a trademark? Ultimately, the purpose of trademark law is to protect the consumer, at least in theory, and to prevent consumer confusion. The purpose of a trademark is not, like if I'm Nike, the purpose of me being able to trademark a swoosh and stop you from making shoes with swooshes on them and then selling them as Nikes, it's not to protect me from getting ripped off by you, ultimately. It's to protect the consumer from getting ripped off by you because we want consumers to be able to rely on on my logo and my things as an indicator of origin and that that way consumers can't get ripped up so con- consumer confusion is the ultimate sort of touchstone in in trademark law although i think that often gets lost in in some of the other things but a trade dress is sort of a a vague trademark in its most classic form it's product packaging so if I sell my product and there are distinctive elements of how I package my product that aren't things that I can I can point to as a specific mark and you come along and you make the same kind of product I do and you don't actually copy my marks, my slogan, my logo, but you write your words in a very similar way and your package is in a similar shape and in similar colors, I might sue you for trade dress because Look, they're clearly trying to to trade on the goodwill that I have earned. They're going to confuse the poor consumers who will buy their junk product instead of my awesome product or whatever. And trade dress is very broad. Like I said, like a literal packaging, that's the basic, that's the most sort of basic example of trade dress. But you can have trade dress in things like website interfaces, although it's very unsettled what exactly constitutes a protectable trade dress in this sort of format, which is especially important when Wizard starts talking about its interface for Duels of the Planeswalkers versus the Hex interface. And that's that's very unsettled what's protectable there or not. And so here, Wizards is saying the same sorts of things it's saying for its copyright, it's saying our trade dress. And they're much more fairly described as trade dress. And that's going to start being the look and feel of the game. Now, one of the problems for wizards is that trade dress and and copyright cannot protect things that are functional. And you can convincingly and correctly, I I think, argue that many of the design elements of magic cards and things like the color pie and, and a lot of the aspects of the cards layout are functional. It's functional that the title of the card is at the top. It's functional that the mana cost is at the top. It's functional that you have factions that these factions have weaknesses right that that is is functional and in fact i I think the most cited article i've i've seen talking about this actually says oh wizards is going to auto lose their trade less claim because they even admit that some of these things are functional well that's incorrect you cannot sue for trade dress over things that are functional but you can have a protectable trade dress in an arrangement of functional things if that arrangement is not itself functional. So you may have individual elements of magic or a product or whatever that are functional, 
but the way that you put together is not. For example, wizards might argue, okay, yeah, having factions with themes and that sort of stuff, that may not be protectable trade dress. But having these exact five colors and having these sorts of flavors to the colors and the fact that you combine this and that with the other, well, th that's not functional. That's just something, right? There's, there's no reason that red has to have lightning bolt. There's no reason why black has to have discard. There's no, and yet, you know, coincidentally, look at that. All of your stuff has, has these things arranged in that way. And so the functionality is an, is a hurdle for wizards, but that doesn't mean it's an insurmountable hurdle. And like I said, this is a very messy area of law. So it's problematic for them. And this is the place where I think Cryptozoic starts to get into a lot of its, this is all the things that we do different. We have, we have permanent changes in cards and, and a lot of other things that we can do in a digital realm that Magic has never done. They have the, ultimately are going to have the PVE and MMO sort of aspects to it. I don't know how much that helps because they haven't done it yet. Although I, I do think that they can reasonably point to it and say, this was an important selling point when we were doing our Kickstarter. And I certainly think it was. For me, at least, for me, when I was looking at Hex and thinking, oh, this could be something that I would be interested in, the reason was because of the PvE content. If Hex had just been the PvP aspects of Hex, I would not have been interested. I mean, I wouldn't even have really stopped and looked at it for all that long. Although, that's partially because then it's just sort of like a fancy version of Magic. <clears throat> yeah, I totally agree with you on that. The fact that you can go through dungeons, it reminds me a lot of what um, Magic did with their video game, you know, way back when. The original Duels of the Planeswalkers and Chandelar. Right. Or... You'd just wander around fighting people, facing random decks, building your deck, that sort of thing. But I think for me it was the fact that the cards that you get that you can change, like whether it's socketing or putting more cards into your deck, and they, they play differently. I think that is, as far as I can tell, that is the biggest thing that separates hex from magic and it's one of the things i looked at it and it's important to keep in mind with the sort of thing that for the trade dress claim inherently functionality is you can copy that if i make a game and it has certain mechanical things about it there really isn't anything in this part of ip that would stop you from just making my game it's not protected the mechanics of my game are not protected and so that's one of these interesting things is that, like, where does functionality end? What, if anything, of these arrangements of things is ornamental or arbitrary rather than functional? And is anybody really ultimately confused? Even if there are a lot of similarities between these things, does anybody really look at Hex and think that they're getting magic? I don't know. But it's a dangerous claim for Hex. In a way, I think that the copyright is not. The third cause of action is a patent. As you may know, Wizards has a patent. I think they got it in 97, although the invention is back in 93. They actually have a patent, sort of, on TCGs. In fact, if you considered valid the entire scope of this patent, it would cover every trading card game ever. And in fact, sort of would cover Every game ever that's customizable, because, of course, it's when you write a patent application, you write it super broad. So 
the broadest claims aren't written in terms of cards. They're written in terms of game elements, one embodiment of which is cards. So you have this, this super broad patent. It's never actually been tested. I think that if Wizards tried to actually enforce the broadest scope of its patent, that the broadest part would then get invalidated. But the narrowest part of it, and the part that they have actually like sort of aggressively gone after, I don't know if Wizards has ever even tried to enforce the broadest parts. I don't think that they have. There were a lot of CCGs that licensed the Wizards patent, but I also know there were a lot of them that didn't. And I know that there are CCGs that specifically did design arounds of the core part of the Magic patent. And the core part, the very, very most limited claim of the Magic patent, is essentially a trading card game that has tapping. A trading card game where you rotate the cards sideways to indicate that they have been used that turn. I had always heard that they weren't able to actually get that in the past. They could get everything else, but they couldn't get the 90-degree turn because of something that was done in Blackjack in Vegas. No, that is in the patent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can go online and look at that. You've got sort of three sort of standalone claims. Claim three is the narrowest of those. And then claims four, five, and six are in successively narrow embodiments, I think, of claim three. Three, I think, might be basically a trading card game where some method is used to indicate that the card has been used. Some method. And then four is like... uh, My memory is not good enough, so go read the patent if you want to see exactly what the wording is. You know, the next one might be like the embodiment of the prior claim where the method of marking is rotation. And then five might be the embodiment of the claim where the rotation is a 90-degree turn, literally. And so I know there have been design arounds done that. The most simple and straightforward example I can think of is that the Star Trek CCG, which I played a lot back in the day, did not have anything like tapping. And when they came out with their, I think it was the first contact expansion, they came out with a mechanic called Countdown, which would basically be that you would put out the countdown card and it would be out for one turn or two turns or three turns or four turns and then it would go away. And in the rules sheet for that expansion, the way that it said to keep track of how many turns it had left was to rotate it. And immediately after the expansion came out, they retracted the rule sheet and said, no, 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 don't rotate it to keep track of it, use tokens. Nice. Yes, it was very clearly trying to making sure that they were not getting into the tapping thing where wizards would come. And as far as I'm aware, the Decipher CCGs did not license the wizards' patent. Other things did. Legend of the Five Rings does. Legend of the Five Rings uses bowing, which is exactly the same thing as tapping. Now, Legend of the Five Rings didn't really have to worry about that because L5R, I guess, theoretically would have been infringing on the the patent that hadn't been granted yet when it was created, but by the time Wizards got the patent, they owned Legend of the Five Rings, so I would assume that when they spun Legend of the Five Rings back off, part of whatever the financial arrangement was there included a permanent license on the patent so that you could actually make the game that you had just bought the rights to. Right. Would that be valid? It's one of those things where we... One, I think it's very easy to look at it and be like, well, that's dumb. How can you patent that? But I think it's very important to remember that you can patent or do as trade dress a lot of things that it's very easy to look at and go, oh my gosh, how did they give you a patent on that? 
Or how did they let that count as trade dress? You have what? You have rounded icons on your smartphone. Somehow that's protectable now. What? But yep, <laughs> it is. Right. So as yeah. Samsung found out, uh, <laughs> and and that that's not even going into the big mess that is uh, the software. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's without even going to that. Yeah, meth, method patents is the thing that there's certainly problems with it. But, you know, that's what it is. So there's that. The the other thing, in a general sense, with patents is that. An idea is not patentable if it's obvious. And so you will see people say, well, isn't this obvious? Isn't it obvious to, you know, you have a status to show that it's used? Isn't it obvious to have a trading card game? Well, it's very easy, not just in this context, but in a lot of contexts, to look at something after it's been created and be like, well, that was obvious, but nobody had done it before. So I think that it is dangerous to look at that patent and just assume that it isn't valid or that it's obvious. So what's going to happen with this? I'm not sure. These things almost never go to litigation, but sometimes they do. Right. The way that it might go may depend on who survives as a defendant, because one of the other things about this is that the plaintiff is Wizards of the Coast. The defendants are Hex Entertainment LLC and Cryptozoic. Well, Hex Entertainment LLC, I'm betting, is nothing, right? That's nothing but Hex. Right. It would make, seem to make sense. I mean, that would be why you would do it as an LLC. But there's Cryptozoic. Well, what is Cryptozoic on the hook for? Because we know that the guy who runs Cryptozoic is the guy who runs Hex. That doesn't mean they're the same entity. But that Kickstarter, whose Kickstarter was that? Hex? Cryptozoic. Oh, no, it was Cryptozoic. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the name on the Kickstarter was Cryptozoic. I have no idea what the corporate arrangements have been. I have no idea at what point they created Hex Entertainment LLC. I have no idea what the title on any of this stuff is. But the reason that could be a big difference is that this is what they call Beth Farm litigation. Because of the way the damages work, if they take this to trial and Wizards wins against Cryptozoic, Cryptozoic is done. The oh, judgment yeah. will be so right. big that they are done. They're gone. On top of whatever... Actually, I don't know. That'd be also very interesting, because if they're done, Hex has to shut down. I guess that they would have to... Because they are technically legally obligated, because they did a Kickstarter to have provided the uh, things they promised to their backers, and they have not delivered everything yet. They've delivered some of it, but not all of it. Yeah, when they could have a variety of problems. Yeah, like I mean, I'm not even going to get into or think about that, but the, the other sort of thing that often comes up with these is preliminary injunction can be the whole game on this, because if, if Wizards got a preliminary injunction against Hex, then Hex would have to shut down, and that would be it. The litigation would end right there. I don't think that would happen here. I think that there's too many triable issues of fact, and I don't think that pre-discovery wizards could possibly show that they were being irreparably harmed. In fact, it goes the other way, right? You completely kill the company hacks if you grant the preliminary injunction, whereas whatever damages wizards may have can be cured with cash. So pretending like I uh, have any legal opinions of value, although, again, let me note that I don't have any legal opinions of value. And you should in no way, shape, or form rely on anything I say in any way. Was there anything that stood out for you guys that I've missed about the suit or that 
the layman might find interesting. When I was thinking about this, when I first saw the suit, the things that really stuck, having played a decent amount of it, not like a ton, but having played a decent amount of it, it being in the alpha client, being in the beta client, having played around with a bunch of it, the thing I really feel like, I don't know, the feel of the game is kind of like Magic, but it is pretty different from Magic. But, but I, I mean, I would say it's about as similar to me as the WoW card game was in, in a lot of ways. I don't think the having the shards that were the almost exact same colors that lined up with almost the exact same like values and ideas and whatnot was really the best idea. That seems like it would open you up. They really did kind of, I don't want to say they straight up lifted it, but it feels very similar. This doesn't mean that they did anything improper that would make them liable for anything, but I don't know how you could look at Hex and look at Magic and not think that Hex is drawing an awful lot from Magic. And then there are a lot of ways that you could perfectly permissibly pull an awful lot from another game. It happens all the time. Right. I was always surprised that WoW didn't... I mean, I guess that maybe they licensed the patent or whatever... But WoW had tapping when you attacked people, and it felt very largely like magic in a lot of ways to me. In a lot of ways, it was. It was like uh, magic. I think the biggest difference between Hex and, and the WoW card game was that in the WoW card game, you only had Alliance and Horde. Even when they introduced the neutral faction, just before the games ended, at best, there was three factions. So the decks were, it was either Alliance or Horde or Monster at the very end. It wasn't, I'm going to play a red-white burn deck or I'm going to play mono black or anything like that. It's tough to me because I really do feel like Cryptozoic innovated in a lot of different ways. There were a lot of things when they described what they wanted to do with their card game that I was like, why has no one ever thought of doing this? Or not that I had ever heard of. So I really want them to be rewarded for that originality. But at the same point, it really did feel like they lifted a lot of stuff out, or it was very similar to Magic. Yeah, the question is, yeah, did they permissibly lift it or not? And that's another thing that you you hear a lot of accurately, that yes, they're innovating a lot. Yes, they're doing a lot of new things. And in some ways, that can matter quite a bit. And in other legal aspects, it can matter not at all. If I, what did I say? I could, uh, you know, I can write a book. And if I write a book featuring uh, this this kid named Harry Potter who's a wizard and goes to a school named Hogwarts, but I do the most innovative, crazy things, this book only exists digitally, and you interact with the book in some way, and based on how you interact with the book, your personal copy of the book will change permanently in ways that make it unique from everybody else's. And I've added an awful lot from what any other Harry Potter book did. You know what? They're still going to sue the pants off of me, and they're going to win. Now... Obviously, that's clearly copyright infringement. I mean, wildly, right, right, obviously, right. which is not not present here. So it matters because things that are new and different can be distinguishing for whether or not there's there's trade drafts. But there's also that matters, but it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The functionality of, of many of the aspects of Wizards is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it also kind of matters what Wizards' intention is, right? Because it may just be that they're trying to say, okay... Here you go, we're shutting you down if we can get this lawsuit. It might also be that they just want to go to um, uh, what is it, arbitration? Well... Or, or do some kind of settlement? Arbitration, let's say that 
Probably not that, although who knows? Right. Right. But well, without getting into that, is yeah, they there's actually a language in here. They said that they attempted to settle the matter with Cryptozoic, which doesn't tell us anything. That could mean that they engaged in some sort of real serious negotiations, or it could mean that they sent a demand letter to knock it off or die. And Cryptozoic right. said, "No, we'd rather not do either of those things. Thank you." Right. They did that in March. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Wizards, to the best of my knowledge, has not killed other, has not killed the TCG. No. They have gone to them and, and forced them to do licenses, and maybe that aided their profitability and, and ended up hurting things in the long run. But I, that doesn't mean naturally hasn't happened. I'm not aware of any situation where Magic went to somebody and said, you can't do this, stop it, period, ever. I'm sorry, no, that's not true. Havoc the Bothering, which was the Magic parody, but that's different. Right. They went after them. So yeah, I don't know if they went to Hex and basically made a quote-unquote settlement offer that amounted to either you stop doing what you're doing or you pay us so much money that you could never possibly make a profit, or if there was something more closely resembling a good-faith effort and then Cryptozoic slash Hex said, yeah, no, we we think we're in the the clear. They've definitely opened themselves up more broadly than other CCGs have, because I don't know if any other TCG has opened themselves up to the non-patent claims in the way that Hex has opened itself up to to the trade dress claim. That doesn't mean that the trade class claim is valid, but it's not right. frivolous. No. I can't tell you how many different things use the exact same card format as Magic. Cost in the upper left hand, strength and power in the bottom right, that type of thing. And it doesn't feel like too many things have been gone after, too many games have, or I guess probably not at all. They have the power in, I don't know, it's attack, defense, whatever at the bottom. And right for the, it's actually like attacks on the bottom left and defenses on the bottom right for the, the hex cards, which is not how Magic does it. Magic, they're both in the bottom right. Oh, true. I, I think they changed that, though. The cost is in the upper left for hex. It's in the upper right for Magic, unless you count two future shifted cards or cycle of future shifted cards or something, something from Future Sight. Right. It's Tarmogoyf! <laughs> uh, so, I... Yeah, God only knows. Every CCG has the card title at the type almost. So I'm actually, like, God help me, the Decipher Star Trek game did not. The Decipher Star Trek game had the card title in the middle and the card type at the top, and that was awful. <laughs> putting the card name at the top is incredibly unbelievably functional. So is putting the casting cost, although L5R doesn't. I actually kind of like L5R's format, but I think you either have to be in the top corner or you have to be in the middle, and I don't think anything else works. L5R's got some differences. Dynasty cards, don't you don't hold them in your hand. Cards that you hold in the hand, that's why you need the, the cost up at the top, because right. when you fan it out, you can only see the top quadrant, top quarter of the card or something like that, mm -hmm. which you don't have to deal with with Dynasty cards. For L5R, for L5R, you've also got the fact that you really want that force up at the top for, like, attachments, because people usually slide them under the personality, and so you need that to be sticking up when the card's in play more than you need the gold cost up at the top. So there are actually reasons why L5R did it, unlike Star Trek, which just had no reason for putting the name of the card in the middle. I <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I think that's, that's it. For me, it was a nice little intersection of gaming and the rest of life.
to get to look at. I think it is also interesting because it does also potentially have impact on other card games, if not current, then maybe in the future. The TCG patent is about to expire, and if you know that it's a problem and you want to avoid it, you can pretty easily design around whatever trade dress wizards may have. But, no, Hex chose not to do that. Anyhow, I really hope you guys don't have any parting thoughts, because I'm pretty (laughs) sure my wife is going to kill me. Well, I think the only parting thought I've got is for, you know, those of you who are more interested in the breakdown of the entire lawsuit, and you kind of got lost with what Chris was talking about, QuietSpeculation.com has got a breakdown of the lawsuit by another lawyer. And uh, it's complete with pictures and stuff like that. It's just a lot of the same stuff Chris talked about, although he edited links to, you really want to go check out the patent, which is like a wall of text. Yes, that, <clears throat> and I didn't want to call out someone so big, that's a, I've read that that was actually the one where he kind of says the lawyers really blow it when they admit that some of the features are functional. Right. I think you'll have a hard time telling a court that several functional features were put together to make a functionless trade dress. You actually can do that. It's better if none of the features are functional at all, but the way he... I felt that kind of the way he presented it did not leave that possibility as open. And I mean, Wizards admits in their complaint that some of the elements are functional because some of the elements are functional. And... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're writing a complaint and you're presenting your side, but you can't assert that these things aren't functional if you're ultimately going to have to admit that they are, right? Like, I mean, one, you're ethically prohibited from doing that, but two, it's stupid because <laughs> the judge is going to be like, why did you present this false information in your complaint? You know? Just as a practical matter, that's... Yeah, th- there are a couple of those up there. You can go on, on scribd.com and download the entire complaint. You can... Google Wizards Sue's Hex or something, and, and I think you'll get a number of, of decent articles, including the the Quiet Speculation one. So, but yes, you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can check us out at strangeassembly.com. We, of course, exist on social media, so you can visit us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. I always like to hear your feedback, as long as you're not from a bar association. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Rich Bowers-Dean and Mike Cook, this is Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.